Hey there, security squirrels. It's Brent Houston from the stateofsecurity.com podcast here at stateofsecurity.com. And uh, this month I got to sit down and really talk with Lisa Wallace from Lansing, Michigan. She has recently joined MSI and she's just got a fantastic background in information security particularly around malware and, and uh, incident analysis and that kind of stuff. And I hope you find the conversation to be fascinating. I think we cover some really good material there. We talk about the history of malware and what it was like when the Internet first came on to uh, the commercial scene. We talk about uh, why she got into information security and what it is that uh, she really enjoys about it. And we talk a little bit about some advice to folks, especially young ladies, that are interested in coming up in information security. And I think she gives some pretty good insights there. So this is the first podcast episode in a little while. We took a little bit of a break there. We're going to pick back up. We may change the scope of it a little bit. And we'll alternate between interviews periodically uh, as well as just some stories that we want to focus on. So some of the things that are going on in information security, some of the things that we see in our threat intelligence work, we really kind of felt like it was time to shift the podcast a little bit and maybe change up the format. So as we kind of do that, go through over the next few months, just uh, let us know what you think. You can, as always, uh, hit us up on Twitter I'm at L-B-H-U-S-T-O-N and, uh, of course, at Microsolved, M-I-C-R-O-S-O-L-B-E-D there on Twitter. Quite heavily monitored, so just uh, let us know if you have any feedback uh, there. Otherwise, as always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Lisa Wallace. Take care. Before we jump into the interview, there is a a quick sponsor for this episode, and I just want to take a moment to thank Microsoft Inc., uh, MSI, for sponsoring this podcast and letting me work on it and really giving me the time and and, uh, resources to put uh, the podcast together. If you are a listener and a reader of stateofsecurity.com, you're probably already very familiar with Microsoft Inc., MSI. But you can find all uh, about what we do at microsolved.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-S-O-L-V-E-D.com. For about 24 years now, we've been doing information security focused. We perform a lot of assessments across the board from uh, networks to applications to mobile devices to industrial control systems to electronic components. And we test equipment all the way from the network stack down to the circuit level. We also do quite a bit of analytics and uh, threat intelligence for organizations that are among the largest in the world, professional sports teams, and uh, down to small banks, credit unions, and highly regulated industries, uh, including power and water and natural gas utilities. So all kinds of stuff across the board. We're very pleased to uh, put this together, and I'm, I'm very thankful that Microsoft uh, gives me the time uh, to work on the podcast. So without further ado, here is the interview with Lisa Wallace. I hope you enjoy it, and uh, check us out if you'd like more info. Have a great day.
Hey there, security squirrels. It's Brent Houston in another stateofsecurity.com episode. I am joined here in the fabulous and honorary Michael Radigan studio today. I've got the folks uh, all around us. We're here at MSI and we are hanging out. I've got a very special guest with me today in the studio, and that is Lisa Wallace from Lansing, Michigan. Good to see you. Thanks for coming down. Well, thank you for having me. Hey, we're always happy to have you on the podcast and love to talk to you. I've known you for a long, long time, but for those uh, readers of ours who aren't familiar, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, a little bit about myself. I started out trying to get a marketing degree 20-some years ago, and the computers in our office kept breaking, and they were paying a Shelby unnamed company $150 an hour to come in, work on the computers, and that company would leave and they would still be broken. So then it became, the company would leave, and we got to call Lisa to fix it right. So I kind of jumped ship, and I've been pushing buttons ever since. That's a pretty awesome story. And we're talking way back in the days of the PCs and we early networks. Floppy drives. Floppy, floppy drives. Dri hard drives were an anomaly. That's fantastic. And so you've been doing this a while. You've been working in, in uh, IT and in this space. And so how did you get from fixing floppy drives to information security? Kind of sideways. Um, I did a lot of server maintenance, some SCCM stuff, and then I kind of stumbled into the antivirus world and got really interested in what's beyond when you catch the cootie. What's beyond that, and what do you do to stop yourself from getting the cootie in the first place? And it turned out to be a really fascinating line of thought and an avenue to get into. And how early was that? Are we talking about in the days when the malware would be attached to floppy drives and to... Uh, modem downloads, or were there already networks? Um, there were already networks when I started doing it professionally, although I have played with viruses off and on since the late 80s, early 90s. So you got any really good early virus stories to tell, that uh, things that were just kind of cutting edge at the time that later... My, my favorite older DOS-based virus actually would start your PC speaker with a siren and an ambulance would roll across your screen, and that was the virus's way of telling you you were infected. That's very cool. That was fun. I can't remember what the name of it was, but that was my favorite. And as I recall, in the early days, I mean, we had kind of ransomware that was going on. It wasn't really like today's ransomware, where it wasn't encrypting the media, but it would do things like, you know, add these little annoyances, and yep. then you could pay to get the to get it disinfected and that kind of stuff, right? And a good chunk of them, a good FDisk slash MBR would take care of, but Joe User doesn't know how to do that. So there was a nice little segment of people over there making money, you know, spending 15 minutes F-disking people. Wow. So working in malware yes. and networks are starting to come online and all of a sudden I assume the internet shows up yeah, and shows up. what happens What happens in the AV world at that moment? Like take us back in time to that spread mechanism that was occurring over modems and, and disks to you, all of a sudden now there are networks and we probably have network spread and then the internet starts to come in. What happens to malware then? It, it propagates a lot quicker because I don't know anybody that was around during the modem days and remembers the incredible fun of when somebody sent you a large picture attachment and you would click download and go get a cup of coffee and come back an hour and a half later. Then what the networks did is give you the instantaneous. And there weren't a lot of security people at that point. There weren't a lot of people telling Joe user, don't click on that read that subject line, does that look like something you should have gotten? So the user, the distribution methods were just starting up. They were still pretty primitive, but our user experience was pretty primitive too. And it seems to me as I think back, I mean, there, there were 
a lot of uh, networks connected without firewalls, without oh. any of the modern sort of security mechanisms they, that we take for granted. If you just said fire what, they'd have pointed at a fire extinguisher on the wall. Yeah. So it was a long time ago. And then, I, as I understand it, uh, over the years of getting to know you and through various conversations, you were pretty early on in the antivirus field, right? So yeah. what was it like seeing, you know, antivirus start up? It was interesting because it was the first time somebody was really trying to do something about it and somebody was starting to ask that larger question. Okay, how do we clean it up? But not only let's go to the next level, how do we stop it from getting there in the first place? Early on, the AV vendors were starting to ask that question and thinking about answering it. And for the most part, that really kind of fell off a little more than I would have expected. Yeah, now you worked in an, an actual group that did reverse engineering of malware and helped yeah. build signatures for for not only, I assume, the company that you were working for itself, but also for uh, larger scale customers, correct? Yeah, we, we, pass, we pass them on to the vendors for the most part. Yeah. Um, and I assume at that time, almost all the AV efforts were heuristic-based. They would have a signature, and yeah. it was, if it, it matched the signature, it would It, it was would all signature-based, which made it very easy for the people writing viruses because you could, you could defeat that signature easily. You didn't have to change very many attributes to your virus. Mm -hmm. You got push the same darn thing again. So tell me about the first time you ever encountered a piece of malware that was network-based. That probably would have been late 90s, early 2000, thereabouts. The worst one I saw was actually a little bit later. It was about 2004, 2005. Um, I actually had a very large client get a hold of this virus, and it took every document on every hard drive it could reach and every network share it could reach and created an, an infected LNK for that file and took the icon. So users were constantly clicking on network share stuff, thinking they were going to their file, they were actually going to this LNK, to their Word document, and the next thing you know, you've infected another 30 PCs. Wow, and was it kind of an exponential expansion? It was, it was horrible. Yeah. It was horrible. And some of the equipment on that account was so outdated that the AV scanner was actually pegging the machine. The server wasn't high-powered enough to keep up with the cleanup effort. So those of you who are listeners and security admins today and you think you have a problem with AV and you have it rough, think back to the early days when it was so unstable to run antivirus scans. And a lot of times it would do as much damage, if not more, as the, uh, as the piece of malware. Yep. It wasn't destructive to the server, but absolutely nobody could get anything done because it was so processor-intensive and disk-intensive to try and do the cleanup efforts that it basically brought everything to a standstill more effectively than the virus itself. So, yeah, I mean, that, and we see some remnants of that today. You still see that kind of stuff and going on. Now, a large part of your career has been in InfoSec for how long? The last... Hmm, the last probably between 12 and 15 years. Yeah. has been an InfoSec of some flavor. Yeah. So why InfoSec? You seem like a very talented IT person. You were clearly at that juncture in your career where you had to make the choice. What was it that pushed you toward information security? Fundamentally, I'm a puzzle person. I love the what ifs. I love having the puzzle presented to you. Ask the question, what's the answer? Figure it out because no one knows that answer yet. So InfoSec as a whole is and still does fascinate me because you're looking at those questions, you're figuring out those puzzles. And a lot of stuff, like the server admin stuff, is very regimented. You know what you're going to do from day to day. You may have a server crash, which is going to pop up VMware. You're going to rebuild it. There's not that puzzle aspect that fascinates me so much. It is constantly dynamic and, and really a lot of decision-making that happens on the cuff. 
what is it that really draws you? What area of information security are you drawn to more than others? I am drawn to, I like social engineering, but I don't like it from the aspect of I want to pull something over on people. I think the more you can educate your people, the better off you are. And if you educate them safely, you're going to protect yourself in the long run on that human interaction. The other thing that fascinates me about InfoSec is no one is ever going to know all of it. You can pick a facet that likes you and, and that you like. You can pick something you're interested in, but there is absolutely no way anyone is going to encompass all of it. And let's talk about that for a minute. So how do you, what strategies do you use in order to stay engaged in that day-to-day -day struggle to know more and more? I hear a lot of security folks talking about how challenging that is for them. What are the, the approaches that you find that work very well for staying up to date? I like to find something that I like fun. Because at the end of the day, if you're doing something you hate, you're not going to be good at it. Find what avenue, if you've got five different lanes to choose from, find one of those lanes fascinates you. Find where your passion is and find what interests you. Find what makes it worth getting up and coming into work in the morning, just not showing up, pushing a button and getting a paycheck. So let's switch away from strategy to tactics. So what does an average day look like for you in terms of knowledge management? An average day for me starts off, I skim Twitter a lot. I get a lot of breaking news off Twitter. Um, I've got some different RSS feeds I look at, and it's basically what do I want to do that day? What am I curious about? Mm -hmm. A lot of what, what rabbit hole are you going down? A lot of times what I end up reading for the day and studying for the day isn't where I started out, but you follow one tangent to another. The things that you're interested in, you end up some, somewhere completely different, and by the end of the day, you've learned quite a few things. So skimming Twitter, I'm going to take you down even even further level. So how does that work for Lisa? The, is that done using the web client? Are you using a, a, an application on your phone? What tool are you using to get to that skimming level of Twitter? Some of both. I've got the web client up. I keep it up during the day. If I'm holding, waiting for a conference call, I'll flip over to that web client. I'll hit page down twice and see what headline catches my eye. I have alerts set up on my phone. I'll follow some stuff that way. It's not a real in-depth medium, but I find that it's very quick for the information to get out there, especially the newer stuff. Yeah, and so you're not using an aggregation tool or anything like that? Not really. Ad hoc is working for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And then for RSS feeds, how do you ingest RSS feeds? Feedly. Ah, okay. I use Feedly. I have an RSS set for security. Again, I go through, I scan the headlines. There are a couple that I consider my top, but I'll scan, scan the headlines on all of them every couple of days. So if there was one sort of knowledge management application, you know, out there, I think uh, we would see that kind of, of aggregation to it. And I do, as I talk to more and more people, everybody kind of uses something different. How do you feel about folks using some of these machine learning tools for monitoring uh, RSS and combining it with Twitter? Have you done, done much beyond using our Tiger Tracks tool internally? I have not done much beyond Tiger Tracks. Um, the thing that I'm always kind of cautious of and where I see missteps is it's pretty obvious, like on a Twitter and RSS, where you see someone using an aggregator and there's no human check. Mm -hmm. And you will end up with things that by the headline could sort of kind of have been picked up by an aggregator as a security-related item, but it's really not. Mm -hmm. It has to do with a restaurant in Svengali. So really staying focused. And then if you move beyond your knowledge management, how do you store and take all the notes? I mean, I, I, it seems like you're constantly 
taking very high quality notes about the work that we're doing together. How do you store and process that? Uh, I use Quip mm -hmm. for some of it. I use just a simple notepad for some of it. A lot of it's just mental. Is it outline kind of technique when you take these notes or is, are you using, you know, mind mapping or what kind of technique do you use to turn uh, meeting notes into an actionable list that, that you're going to manage? I've been doing that for so long, it is mostly on the fly. I can just type it out and know what I want to ask or know what I want to talk about it, and I organize it as I go. So if you had to teach that, I'm, I'm going to keep pushing. Yeah. If you had to teach that to, to some teach of these it. folks, right? If, you, if you're a young information security professional just getting started, how would you suggest they manage their notes and turn that into sort of action items. I would look at something like an Evernote or a Quip where you can get to your things from anywhere. Don't reinvent the wheel every time and don't make your notes a one-off. Every client you talk to, there's going to be differences, but there's also going to be similarities. Learn to build on that. Mm -hmm. So you start with a little bit of an either a physical or a mental outline every time you start that conversation. You know what points you're going to hit and you don't have to keep going back because you hit it on that first go-around. So I'm not overly familiar with Quip, and uh, I hadn't, haven't heard a lot about it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? What, is it a mobile app? Is it a, a web application? It's a mobile app. It's a web app. Um, I actually picked it up, I think, off AppSumo. I picked up a year really cheap just to play with. Um, it skews itself, and I believe they actually got, just got purchased by Salesforce. It skews itself as a group document management. I don't use it as a group interface kind of thing, but I like the ability to quickly pop up a checklist and be able to check tasks off as done, and be able to reference them if I'm at a client site or if I'm away from my office and I've got it on my phone. And so really, between Twitter and RSS and, and Quip, it sounds like this is really the engine for knowledge management that you use. The key is to don't try to fit yourself into a framework. Find a framework that works for you. Yeah, that's a very interesting lesson. I I think the other thing is um, I see a lot of folks that get caught up in the, I'm going to try the latest tool. So yeah. I, I've learned this note-taking platform and it's working for me, but now some new shiny tool comes out and they move from tool to tool and they end up burning so many resources just moving between different security tools, different note-taking tools, different to-do lists that it really ends up draining their capability over time to actually perform. And uh, we also have a special guest, Tio, if you hear him in the background. Uh, he's a uh, wonderful little pup hanging out with us today. So if you hear a bark, uh, listeners, you'll know what's going on. Uh, we brought in the cousin to the chief barkable officer here at MSI to hang out with us for the day. So uh, let's see. Let's kind of talk about, we talked a little bit about knowledge management and, and kind of torn that down. Another piece of what you seem to do every day, Lisa, is really interfacing between the information security engineers that are doing some of our pen testing, app assessment work, and at the same time, talking to customers who are across the board in their technical level of uh, capability. You might be talking to a CEO. The next call, you might be on with a security engineer. The next call, it might be an IT manager. Talk to me about what it's like to interface between those extremes? It really, a lot of ways, it's like being a foreign language translator. It's something I've done for years. I worked in the financial sector for a while, and I've actually got a couple commendations there for being able to text speak and turn it into human language and vice versa. You've got to understand 
where both people are coming from and what their objectives are. The engineers want to finish the engagement. They want to do the best job they can. The CEO wants the best info on his organization, but he doesn't want to care what firewall they have. He doesn't want to care about the IP space. IT, the IP space. You have to be able to go between those two worlds and take it down to the level of the average person that you're talking to and then translate that back up into something the engineers can understand and take it into usable information right away without a lot of legwork on there. And so how do you do that? How do you take something like, let's say, a specific vulnerability, like, um, let's say, a buffer overflow in a, in a given product? How do you take that and convert it down to something outside of technology? I use a lot of comparisons. For example, if I'm using a vulnerability that's a denial of service, we might do a comparison to kicking on the door. Mm -hmm. Take it to something that they can relate to in their life that is beyond the computer and just physical abstraction of the technical happening. And do you find that to be pretty effective? That is fairly effective. Yeah. That is fairly effective. And at that point, you're also going to get good questions from them about how far on that technical scale you can go. And that's a very good point. One of the, the things that I think we've seen a lot of is sort of uh, the failure of some security teams to listen to the questions that are being asked. It seems like a lot of times they, the, the folks that are interacting with some of these management teams, the feedback is they're not, they're not listening that we don't understand. They keep saying the same thing over and over. And so I think um, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in my career is to listen to the questions they're asking, but also instead of just coming straight out with just fact, 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 really starting to have a conversation and ask them leading questions to put them in that state of mind. And I've watched you do that a number of times. Do you find that that sort of back and forth, question to question, do you find that to be an effective means of creating rapport? I do. And I do believe that listening is even more important than talking because that's going to lead you to the next question that's going to get you both where you want to be. So many people are so interested in making their point and getting their message across that they're, actually, they're not actually listening to what's being said. They're listening to respond. They're not listening to understand. And is there an age difference whereby the way the communication mechanism needs to change or the, the sort of way you build rapport changes based on whether someone is kind of further along in their career versus uh, just kind of getting started? It does change a little bit. People that are more experienced can be less technical, and you need to draw a lot more of those parallels, and they have a greater need to feel like they're being heard. So then the listening becomes even more important. And again, if you, were, if you could talk to a young person who is just starting out in information security and who kind of doesn't yet know how to talk to their executive management, what are a couple of the lessons learned that you would you would try to convey to them? I would listen, and I would take, and we actually did extra, early on in my career, when we were starting to work with the AV stuff, we did some of this. You ever played Pictionary, mm -hmm. where you had to describe a picture to someone? Describe your technical problem without using any technical terms. That will get you to the knocking the door down analogy. Mm -hmm. And you begin to learn other ways to think of describing the vulnerability, describing the scenario, describing what happens without being tied to your buzzwords. And do you find that that buzzword piece, we hear this a lot, I hear it a lot when I talk to folks, that the buzzword piece is really difficult for non-technical people. 
And it is one of those barriers that seems to stand in the way. Do you, do you find the same thing? I, I find that to be a huge barrier because immediately you've made them feel inadequate. If you can't communicate in anything but the buzzword of the day, you've made them feel dumb. You need to somehow level set so that your communication is on the same page. Yeah, I used to have a, a boss a long time ago who said, you know, I didn't go to school and get a master's degree so I could feel like an idiot. Exactly. Explain this to me in non-IT terms. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was a great career thing because uh, them forcing me to do that uh, had huge payoff. Let's change gears a little bit. I, there's so much focus these days on women in information security and in STEM careers in general. Uh, I know we've had a lot of podcast discussion over the last few years about this. We had Helen Patton on from Ohio State University. She she talked at length about the movement of trying to get more women into STEM and infosec. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just start at a high level again and ask it: What's it like being a woman in information security? To me, it's different, but it's not that different because for most of my career, I've been one of the very few women in what I'm doing. When you start back to the very educational level, you're in junior high, high school, even earlier, girls are rewarded for being good and for following directions and doing very on-task, on-target coloring within the lines. Boys in the educational system, and I sure hope that's starting to change by now, are rewarded more for the risk-taking, the thought leadership. Um, there's a meme that floats around the internet with a little girl pointing at a little boy, and she says, I'm not bossy, I have leadership skills. And that, to <laughs> me, is perfect, because girls are told that you're being bossy, and boys are saying, that's a future executive over there. So the women that I see in IT in general tend to end up in more defined careers. They're in programming, where the rules are the same all the time, and you follow a clearly defined process. They're in some kind of server management, where, again, you apply the patch the same way at the same time, and they are spectacular at what they do, but we're not doing a great job of encouraging women to think outside the box. We're not encouraging them to look for those puzzles. And I was lucky enough that I had people all through my life that encouraged me to look for those puzzles. Now, do you find that that sort of disconnect in the way that we're kind of starting early to train young women, do you find that 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 is carrying over from the candidates that you see and the other folks that, that you interact with now that are coming into the space? It's getting better because you're seeing a lot of women more comfortable with, I don't care. I'm not normal. I'm not coloring outside of the, I'm coloring outside of the lines. I'm not going to stay in that box and I'm going to own it. You're starting to see more confidence. You're starting to see women becoming a lot more comfortable with that non-traditional mindset. And I love it. Now you have a daughter, I do. correct? Um, is your daughter in IT? She is partially. She works for a local community college, and she does some IT stuff. She does a lot of office management stuff. But I can definitely say she's pretty much been raised not to color inside the lines. <laughs> and I think that's fantastic. Do you see a time in the next five to, you know, say five to seven years where that shifts? Do you see coming down the pipe a time when there will be more women in information security? I don't see a huge shift in the next five to seven years, but I think we're starting to see it. And the reason we're starting to see it, and I've actually had a couple really fascinating conversations on Twitter, of all places, I'm, we're starting to see men ask the question, why are the women in these boxes? What can we do to help them? And as sexist and unfortunate as that is, the women are not going to get traction on their own. 
until you see some of that. Yeah, and I think um, I think I agree with that. I see more and more questions being asked about uh, about it. I know in my personal mentoring in the groups that we're, we reach out to to work with young people, I am starting to see more women. Now, it's it's certainly not overcoming it. They, they, when you look at a class of folks who are uh, graduating from, let's say, a, a associate's level program, you're still seeing women uh, as 10 percent of that class. I haven't yet worked with any classes where they're, you know, even 40 to 50 percent of, uh, of the class. But I do see more than I used to, and I am working with more in my mentoring program than before. If you could talk to these young women in mass coming into information security, what are a couple of things that you would tell them from a, a person who's been around a little bit longer? Don't let anybody patronize you. Lord, there are a lot of patronizing men out there. And they're patronizing <laughs> women, too. I earned my way up, and you haven't earned it yet. Do what you want to do. Do what you love. Own it. And don't let anybody stop you. Don't let anybody tell you no. Because if there's a door that's closed over here, there's a door that's open over there. Yeah. So really just stick to the task. Stick to the task. Different is not wrong. Mm-hmm. If you want to be different and you are different, own it. And I think that's another interesting thing. We are starting to see... People who are more comfortable with being the anomaly. I think one of the things that I'm interested in heavily is sort of that dynamic change that's occurred in the last couple of years graduating from college from these programs. You start to see folks who really are okay with being the outlier. And there seems to be a, I think it's a good thing because there seems to be a little bit less of that angst, you know, that, that happens. I think we all go through that right after college, but I think I'm seeing less of that. And I think it's good, ultimately, for the industry. And if they tell you high school was the best time of your life, they lied. Absolutely, they lied. Yeah. But even 10 years ago, if I would go to a lot of InfoSec events, I would be the only woman in the room of 100 people. And there still may only be 10 or 15 of us now, but that's 14 more than there were 10 years ago. Yeah. And I know when, um, when I had Helen on, you know, she talked quite a lot about the way that institutions and, and universities are, are reaching out to the community, and they're trying heavily to bring uh, women into STEM programs. What if there are women out there who maybe are in adjacent areas? Maybe they're in programmer programming already, maybe they're IT folks, but they're nervous about jumping into information security. How would you tell them to go about making that switch? I would tell them to go find which one of those facets fascinates them. What interests you? Because you're always going to be better at what you love than what you have to do. So if that's intrusion detection or SIM, or maybe you take that programming knowledge and apply it to something like log review, or maybe you're doing threat intelligence and penetration testing. Really, that sort of focus, finding that focus you see is key. Exactly. And a lot of those skills you're going to find are going to be transferable. Mm -hmm. A programmer learns to be very, very detail-oriented and very regimented. And that may serve you well in something like a vulnerability assessment where you need to make sure you've hit absolutely every surface. Yeah, that's, I think, fantastic, fantastic advice. If you could tell yourself something, send a message back through time 10 years ago. 10 years. So put us in that place. Tell us kind of what's going on in your life. Where are you? And what would you... Tell yourself, what advice would you send back to your 10-year-ago self? What I would tell myself 10 years ago, and my least favorite interview question on the planet, is where do you see yourself in five years? 
And I've answered that question for about 15 years now. I can't answer that because what I'm doing today didn't exist five years ago. What I would tell myself 10 years ago is keep going down the roads. Don't be afraid to take some of those sideways steps. I probably did miss a few along the way because I played it safe. I think that's great advice. And I love the idea of uh, what you, you know, what you'll be doing in five years doesn't exist today. That is absolutely true. I, I think um, there we're in this unique time in the IT world and specifically in information security where five years from now, the horizon is so changed, we can't even possibly guess what will be there. And, and there's two things there. There's a challenge in preparation for it and being starting to learn to be comfortable with change and the unknown, because I think that's, that's what's coming. But the second thing is, this is such a unique opportunity right now where you can literally create the job that you want to do in InfoSec. You can combine intrusion detection and pen testing and intelligence. And I like these three things and I can snap those Legos together and make my own car. And that's very similar to the way it was when I started out. When I started out, you, there was not a class to go to to learn to build a computer. You found somebody who knew more than you. You learned from them. They learned what they could from you. It was a very communal effort. And I see a lot of that's where InfoSec is going today. You find somebody who knows more than you. You find stuff that they know you don't, and they learn from you at the same time. Absolutely. And, and I think it's a great opportunity. I really do think that now is the time to be in InfoSec and, and to look forward. When I look at the collision between analytics and where crime is going and the sudden development and ubiquity of sensors and machine learning, I think the next decade in information security is going to be the most exciting decade that this industry has ever faced. You just better hang on because it's going to be one heck of a ride. Totally, totally agree. So if folks couldn't get enough, if, if after a half an hour they said, man, I want to get some more Lisa Wallace, I just need her to drop some more knowledge bombs on me. Where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter. I am the token female. The token female. Yep, I am also available at lwallace at microsoft.com. That's awesome. Thanks so much for coming down from Lansing to hang out with us. We really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for hanging out in the Michael Radigan studio. We appreciate <laughs> it today. Thank you. All right. Well, okay. folks, if you want to hear more about uh, Lisa and her past or you want to talk AV with her, maybe go back in time and like really get down on some of these viruses, hit her up on Twitter. She's always available to talk, loves to, loves to talk with folks and really engage. Uh, she's a very nice lady and a great person. So please come, uh, come talk to her. We appreciate you uh, listening and we will see you again soon. Until next time, be safe out there. you enjoyed listening to the interview with Lisa Wallace. Before we go here this time around, just wanted to again thank Microsoft Inc. for letting me work on the podcast and giving me the time and resources to put it together, as well as for bringing Lisa to town to do the podcast with me. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. As I said, we're going to put some uh, changes together. If you have some content that you would like us to cover, if you see some stuff on Twitter, some topics that we're discussing or on the blog that you'd like to hear more about on the podcast, please just drop us a line. You can always reach me on Twitter at L-B-H-U-S-T-O-N. 
And uh, you can find me there. Just drop me a line. Let me know what you'd like to hear on the podcast. We'll bring people in if, if you'd uh, like to be a guest or you have someone that you think it would be fascinating to hear from. Please just drop us a line. Let us know. We'll try to make that happen. And uh, as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for reading the stateofsecurity.com podcast uh, and site. And until next time, stay safe out there. Yeah.